0: I think there's a ton of opportunity out there for everyone. And I think that the time has never been better right now than to bring something forward to your company, to talk about a product that you think is profitable and has growth in it, and then to start to address a customer base. There's never a bad time to do this.
1: Hello, and welcome to Funded, a podcast by Pixel Recess. My name is Mark, I'm your host, and that voice you just heard was Rich Moore. I wanted to have Rich on the show because he has a unique perspective on startups and funding. Until recently, Rich was a senior executive at Ryder who had spent his entire career there, but who did something rather interesting. He started a startup inside the company and launched it. I think it's good to hear how a large corporation works with startups, what startups should consider before approaching somebody like Rich. And it's especially interesting to hear how you can launch a startup inside of a publicly traded company. One thing to note, we recorded this a couple months ago, and since then, Rich has left Rider and is now at Chargepoint. The startup we mentioned, Coop, is still run by Roman, the same person who ran it when Rich was at the company. So enjoy this one, and please visit pixelrecess.com to provide feedback and engage
0: with us. I'm Rich Moore. I'm the Chief Technology Officer for Ryder out of Miami, Florida, working for an 80-year-old trucking company for the last 23 years and learning a lot around technology in a very old industry.
1: So tell us how you, you got to where you are. Walk us through the history.
0: I started basically right before I I even finished college. I was actually going to nursing school up in Connecticut and I was working on the ambulance and absolutely hated it because of midnight hours and union and not being able to get off. And one of my next door neighbors worked for a trucking company and said there was a job open in Bridgeport renting trucks during the day. And I said, I'm in. So I started really working part time for the company.
1: That was for Ryder. Yeah. You were on the desk at one point.
0: Yeah. I was on the rental counter making, I think six bucks an hour or seven bucks an hour back in 1990, 1994, Wow! but I absolutely fell in love with the team and all the guys that I worked with and got to know that crew really well up in the Northeast area. Started in uh, Bridgeport, went to work up in uh, New York, like Yonkers area for a while. And then upstate got to work a little bit in the city in Brooklyn and Bronx and uh, Yonkers. And then from there finished off my undergrad and then moved all over the country for rider for the next 20 years. So a lot of different positions were worked in Europe for a while in our UK operation. I did two years up in Canada, lived in the GTA worked in Virginia, Texas, the West Coast, Colorado, and then was lucky enough about 10 years ago or almost 12 years ago now to come to Georgia and work in Alpharetta in our shared service center. So Ryder's got a headquarters in Miami and we have a big administrative center and in Alpharetta, we opened back in the early 90s where we consolidated a lot of our kind of administrative processes. So I was fortunate enough to be able to run Maine the Florida for about five or six years before I took over as the VP of rental for the company. So it's been a privilege to work for this company as long as I have I and mean, it's been a it's been a great learning experience
1: so people don't know anything about trucking is there technology involved in trucking
0: yeah the technology has come along a long way in the industry especially the speed over the last three years has been the fastest I've ever seen in the industry so you get two pieces to technology you have the the truck technology which is really emissions driven and that the federal government really mandates what the emission standards are on vehicles similar automobiles. And the trucking industry had two really big technology changes on trucks, one in 07 and one in 011. And those were severe emission changes, which required engine technology to change really dramatically. And that was from an emission standard standpoint. But then also on the technology side, there's more accountability to ever in the driver segment of the transportation industry. And that was really led by the FMCSA, which is the Federal Motor Carrier uh, Standards Division of, of DOT. And what they mandated three years ago was commercial drivers, which are professional drivers, have to start keeping track of their records electronically. And that's really around meal and rest breaks, which is called hours of service. So a driver is only allowed to drive for so many hours per day, per week with breaks. And it used to be documented in a paper logbook that they would hand to an officer when they go through a wait station and the FMCSA changed that to electronically 3 years ago which I was on the forefront on with Congress on asking for specific exemptions for rider's business and other rental businesses, which was really important for the trucking industry. So what happened is you saw a major shift in connected fleet telematics, TMS integrations. We were a fax EDI (laughs) kind of I'll mail you my documents industry for a real long time. And we very quickly switched to a highly connected fleet, remote fault code diagnostics, every driver's got a tablet where they're keeping track of their hours of service it's tied into the telematics in the vehicle we're reporting fuel consumption by the mile now off the ecms off the trucks we now know with, with uh, rear and forward-facing cameras how much capacity is left in the back of the trailer You're, you've seen technology that's changed so fast in the last three years and it's really only been three years since the the eld mandate went into effect nationwide in the u.s and canada So the speed of technology in this industry and and most of the major startups in this industry are raising billions of dollars of capital all around Connected Fleet. You see what Sam Sara has done in this industry, what you've seen what Forkites and Project 44 has done. Those companies have raised billions of dollars in PE and VC money over the last three years. And those companies didn't exist three years ago, all because of the visibility in this industry. So it's, for as old as an industry, it's extremely exciting now from a technology standpoint.
1: All right, so this podcast is usually about funding and deals And so I wanted to have you on for two reasons. Like we've talked to Mike Mahan, who's much more of a traditional corporate venture capitalist, right? But I wanted to talk to you then about two sort of ideas. One would be the startup, which we'll talk about. But the first would be your engagement in the general funding and the startup ecosystem nationally. I I think most people don't understand that even at a company like Ryder, you have to be deeply involved and they don't really know probably what that ecosystem looks like. So could you describe some of that?
0: We're active with a a number of VCMP firms right now. So one of the probably more common ones that everyone that listens would know was plug and play out in the West Coast. So startup kind of grind house, bring them in, burn them out, raise them up and, and pump them and get them the revenue. That model with Saeed who owns plug and play. We've been an investor in theirs for almost five years now, actively participating with them in deal reviews. And we look at everything from what are they bringing in the transport side to the connected fleet side to the IOT side. We even play with FinTech with them on different products that are coming through their portfolio. So that's really on the seed side on that plug and play. And then on more of the mature companies, we partner with AutoTech, Autotech ventures, which is more of your transportation portfolio type positions that they take in companies. And we go through active deals or deal reviews with them. We know what they're passing on. We know what they're going to fund. We're in their fund. We've just renewed again in their fund. We disclose that every year. I'm in California as much as any other state in the U.S. working on on deal structures and startups and trying to understand what technologies we're going to bring in. And some of them we adopt and we bring into the company, and some of them we just stay investors in. But it's, it's something that's become critically important to our business from a technology standpoint. And and frankly, from understanding what businesses in the U.S. are emerging and which ones we would potentially look to acquire in the future.
1: So can you give an example of somebody that you have invested in or any kind of actual practical example of, of that kind of work?
0: You'll see with the autonomous companies right now. Mm-hmm. You, you you just saw the announcement come out from Ike, which is one of the autonomous providers. And so you have two simple, Waymo, which are all big commercial class eight A V providers, autonomous vehicle providers that are partnering with major OEMs. And and we made a strategic partnership with Ike that came out a couple of months ago. And then that was something that started a long time ago. Those guys were with Uber five years ago when they started working on autonomous. And then they broke out from Uber and then started Ike. So we knew them way back from the Uber days, and they've gone through deal flows. So what we've done with InCharge, which is a company that does charging and infrastructure for electric vehicles, they're funded by Macquarie Capital, partnered with ABB, which is the largest component manufacturer in the world for electrical charging. And we did a very early partnership with them that we we announced publicly. All of those companies are things that have come through deal flows that we've worked on either through our partners on the VC or the uh, PE side or on the uh, kind of the that plug and play incubator type. It's a hard muscle to flex to be able mm-hmm. to manage all those pipelines on your own. So that's why as a big company, you need those partnerships that you develop from a funding standpoint, because there's no way you can just say, we're open to looking at everyone. It doesn't make sense. So you right. need partners like that to bring best-in-class products, early stage, in front of us.
1: So you will do direct investments into some of those, or at least investments through those other vehicles. Sure, through those partners. And we have. And the, yep. and and they yep. usually get to you. Yep, we will. They get to you through those channels. They get through to you through leverage channels that you use to understand the market. Yeah, the, the
0: vast market. majority. Get, yep. Exactly. Okay. So
1: on those deals, do you do both investments and commercial deals? Like you'll also cut contracts yeah. with them?
0: Yeah, we'll do revenue agreements. We'll do your typical MSA with earnouts. We'll do direct investments. What you're looking for, from our standpoint, is what are the synergies with our company? Is it complementary to the services that we're offering? And then, if it is, we want a revenue share of that. Because if I'm going to make you a millionaire, <laughs> I need to have some upside on that. You can't just come on board on the back of us and and expect to be along for the ride. So those type of partnerships are really important. when you evaluate them, you got to pick your. I'd say as a as someone that has a startup looking at strategic investors right we're looking for people that are complementary to our business to partner with it's the same both ways around
1: yeah so what stage are these you're a very large company so you probably can't just handle any particular startup and they have to be able to deliver. So how how do you make that assessment and do that judging?
0: Yeah. Very few that are pre-revenue. They always have had some type of revenue in their model or they've had past success already when they introduced this product. So in charge was pretty early stage with Cam and Terry. So they were just starting to produce revenue, but we knew them from their previous lives when they worked for ABB and what they had done for that company. We needed that kind of end-to-end solution for our customers going into electric. So we needed not only the energy mitigation, but the charging infrastructure plus the visibility tools. So we needed that end-to-end management and we knew that they would be able to provide that from start to finish for our customers. And we knew they had the backing of, you know, a big investment bank like Macquarie Capital, we knew that they already had a strategic agreement with ABB. So it was a no brainer for us to do to uh, partner with them on that. It fit perfectly.
1: How do you evaluate build versus buy? How, you have developed internal technology before. Like you have a fleet management system that you we all have. built. So how do you make those decisions on build versus buy? It's
0: CapEx versus OpEx. Really, it's just, <laughs> <laughs> that's what it comes down to. I, I wish I had a more sophisticated answer for you. But it really it's a CapEx versus OpEx question, right? It does it, What's it going to cost us to build it on our own and operating expense with our people and our resources? And what's it going to take to, how much time is it going to take to run that product up? or do we just bring it on and buy it? And I suppose it's so
1: really also it's how core, how core of, is the whatever is being built to what you all do. There are things exactly. that are in your wheelhouse much more than battery development or...
0: Right. Battery monitoring or telematics devices. We're not going to build a telematics. Geotab has 2 million pups in the U.S. They're clearly the market leader. We might as well partner with them on telematics so we'll do some of the integrations on our side we'll build out some of the apis into our systems to ingest data we build out data lakes and stuff like that so we can represent that data in the right manner to our customers for everything they offer we use as much as we can and then bring it into our own systems
1: what advice would you give to someone who started a company that wants to go after a very large market like the trucking industry what is the best way to end up in a situation where they're involved with someone like you all?
0: Yeah, so where do you generate revenue or savings for that company and make it this, make it specific to them? We get a lot of investors coming on saying, this is what we do, and this is the market we're moving into. And I'm like, yeah, but how does that relate to us? You just want access to our customers. And, and I had this with a company in Europe that wanted us to invest in their company, and they want us to roll out their product. And I'm like, guys, I just don't have the bandwidth and the resources to invest in you guys. If I roll this out to my team and say, I'd like you to do this, they're going to look at me like I'm crazy because they're going to say, where's the value to us? All I'm doing is making that company successful on the back of all the work of my team. So those are the conversations. and, And the guy just couldn't understand why I wouldn't want his product. He just, he was like floored that we didn't want to partner with them. And I finally had to tell them. I said, listen, I can't find where this makes any of our salespeople's job simpler. I don't see where it makes any of our customer experience better. And I don't see where I make any revenue on this product for the company. So why am I doing this? I'm like, go deal with an OEM and get in their SBO right. and sell direct. I'm not going to lift this for you. I don't disagree. It was a good product. It, it, it was, there was nothing wrong with the product. It just wasn't a fit for us. And the level of effort, the, the the squeeze definitely outweighed the juice on that one, right. And I see a lot of I see a lot of those, right? because they want access to the customer base, they want access to your sales force, they want access to your vehicle types or they want to run a pilot for you to use your name. I, I just don't have the time to deal with a pilot for a couple trucks for you to prove out your use case so then you can throw <laughs> my logo on your website that you did a pilot. All it right. doesn't I don't have the time for that. Well, Everyone's too busy.
1: I'll check that off my request list then. So you but you work with venture and private equity. So h- how do you evaluate those partners? And a lot of people are trying to figure out how they evaluate investors. You're, you have an interesting tech, because you have leverage in a way that most people don't yeah. have leverage. So how, how do you go about
0: that process? Really, it's about the product, not who's offering it. So we don't care what, who it comes from, whether it's PE or VC, or it's the guy's it on himself on his own with angel money. And now he's at revenue. We, we really don't care. It's what is the product and is it relative to our industry? We're very customer focused, right? Because it's either our dedicated business, it's our rental business or our leasing business. What problem does it solve for our business is what we're asking or is it providing a future solution that we're going to need in the future, like charging an infrastructure? We did in charge probably three years before we needed to, if not four years before we needed to, because there's not a lot of electric commercial vehicles in the U.S. right now. But we knew that was going to be strategic enough that we had to get that done early. And we were willing to wait on that and work with them on that as they matured. And it's worked out. It's worked out great. So I don't think there's ever a time of, too early. It's just a matter of, are you solving a problem that we're eventually going to run into?
1: So you have an interesting perspective on deals because you've co-invested in deals and seen deals, facilitated deals as active in that world, but not actually functioning as a venture capital firm. What kind of advice would you give to founders about how they evaluate who invests in them and how they evaluate the industry and what the industry does to serve them.
0: Yeah, I think one is, one is don't be afraid to, to give out equity in your company if there really are synergies there. And if the company that's gonna part with you is really gonna provide synergies for your startup and is really gonna end up driving revenue for you long-term and that's one, one of the companies that you're looking at to partner with to Accelerate, don't be afraid to give up equity. That should be one of the things you start to leverage early in the process. Now, you can't do that for everyone and you can't do that for everyone you partner with. But the other thing is, sometimes equity goes a lot longer than cash. So if you don't need the cash, why are you asking for the cash? So give an earn out, earn equity with the company you're partnering with, and then be able to on-ramp that way because then it it holds the person that you're investing with accountable and the company that's in that is making the commitment to you it holds them accountable to the revenue earnout. we we find that to be a very powerful tool as we're looking at what is the commitment of this startup if we're going to do this What are we going to get in return? That type of contract. That's one that's really important for an early stage startup. I know everyone's looking to raise cash and that's important. But if you're walking into a company that already has a revenue model and you want to start creating revenue in your company, that's one that you leverage pretty quick.
1: Okay. So another thing that makes you special is that you're working at a giant old publicly traded company and decided you wanted to do a startup and didn't leave to go do that. So why don't you describe a little bit about that history?
0: So we started a company called Coop, which is a coop.com. It's an asset sharing company that belongs to Ryder. We had a growth funding pool of money every year that we all competed for with all the heads of the divisions. And we get together in a room and everyone puts forward what their piece of the growth funding initiatives and you fight it out until someone wins and you end up with a a pile of money. So we ended up with, I think, uh, $300,000 three years ago, three and a half years ago, which, which was the growth funding money that was allocated to us understanding what asset sharing was all about. So what does that
1: usually so go to? What kinds of projects do those usually? does that money usually go to?
0: We've looked at data as a service, monetization. We looked at freight brokerage. There's a whole array of things. Is it
1: often did. a pitch to start a company or was that unique?
0: I think we were the first one step we would call it something other than Ryder. Yes. So right. we were probably, I don't think we've, in the history of Ryder, we've had other divisions that have been called something else a long time ago. I'll give you one example. We used to own a company called Bob's Barricades back in the early eighties that we started and, and eventually sold. those was before I was probably still in, in grammar school. There's not many of those in the 85 years. So us coming forward and saying, Hey, we want to start on an, it. And we, we didn't even have a name for it. When we started it, we just knew we wanted to test asset sharing. And then we came up with, the name Coop one night, probably in a bar after a couple of beers, trying to figure this thing out. But basically they they gave us 300,000 to do an MVP to show what could all the possible frictions be when you're taking a commercial vehicle, one customer and loaning it to another one. And what would happen from everything, regulatory, tax, liability, what's the workflow look like? What are all the things you're going to run into? So we spent that money and basically stood up, stood up a platform where we could do a transaction. And we got a group of customers that we begged to Pilot this with us, and promised them that we'd pay them, and nothing would happen to their trucks, and they did. Rider would make it right, and we were able to get forty or fifty transactions done on the MVP and prove out what all the frictions were going to be on the platform. We got the money in August, started the MVP in September, and we did our first forty transactions by December. And what, it was, was it always
1: tech enabled? Did you do a version of it that was more
0: hand-to-hand combat? MVP wasn't really tech enabled. <laughs> it, it was more more a clickable prototype with yeah,
1: with was, manpower in the background.
0: Was, yeah. We had someone else in the background accepting the reservation and assigning the reservation and then emailing the customer back and then texting them that we're coming over. And then we had a tablet that we had to screenshot all the pictures and load them up to an FTP. (laughs) It was pieced together, but it it was, we had a website. So it was like, we could actually show our executive team that like, you could go see this online. And that was enough to settle everyone down that we had successfully pulled off an MVP. And then from the MVP that we did in December, we got funded a portion of money from Ryder to push forward and go to, I guess you call version one or the, the first sprint cycle that we had of, of Coop. And then we push forward from there. We're just over three years in now to the company. We're in uh, three states right now and then we're rolling on a number of states next year. We'll do 43 000 to 45,000 transactions this year and we're going to more than double again next year.
1: So it's pretty well documented historically that, that startups inside of large publicly traded companies are at least difficult, if not impossible. Why do you feel like in this particular Situation, you were able to make that work. Was it something about Ryder? Was it something about you and the team?
0: Yeah, I learned actually at the one of the plug and play events, I, I got to know a guy, he he runs a European filter maker company that they do like these very complicated filter for these high-end machines. They're thousands and thousands of dollars and he runs an incubator out of his company and he was at plug and play and we were having dinner and he does a ton of startups in, inside his company and, and I was asking him that exact same question. The advice he gave me that night is that it's got to be removed from your company. It's got to be on its own, separated. You need to have executive support and you need to be able to report back up to your company. But that team needs to be completely independent from the mothership. So when we did this, the first thing we did was we moved out of Rider. We found an old Rider building that no one was using 12 miles from the headquarters building. We put the team there. All of our staff in the field is offsite. That is running the business. We really individualized this business. We have our own CRM, our own financial reporting system. Other than the checks that say Rider, everything else is cool. We don't tie into any rider legacy systems at all from GL, RevRec, or tax or licensing or any of that. We don't tie into any of the rider legacy systems. We always operated the business as if we were going to break off and sell it. So we always kept that in mind as we were trying to carve this business out from Ryder. And it's worked out well because it's nice working for a Fortune 500 company because the, the money in <laughs> the, the, the backing is very nice. Right. We don't ever worry about our checks bouncing. But at the same time, working outside of Ryder gave Roman and the team the speed that they needed to make decisions independently from what we typically do. So when we need to bring out a resource or data, we do. When we need to bring out a resource for legal because we have to redo a contract, we bring them on. Those types of decisions go a lot faster. Now, it's very nice having this roll up to rider because we have access to the customer base. So most startups would kill for that access to uh, thousands of customers and hundreds of thousands of vehicles. And frankly, the buying power that we get supporting the business. We have an enormous amount of leverage that other startups wouldn't have. So yeah, it's really tough, but it's also, it gives you a lot of runway if you can manage it properly.
1: Right, so there's two general challenges in these scenarios. One is the meddling issue, what you just said, right? If if you try to keep it internally and you just put them on a different floor, it can turn into a nightmare and fold in on itself. The other is running a startup is very different than working at a Fortune 100 company. It's not a global enterprise in those terms. And you don't do the same things. You don't operate the same way. You cannot have the same mindsets. Often, startups run by former large enterprise executives who can't get out of their old mindsets are absolutely doomed because that's not how a startup works. That's not how you can r- run things. Everybody does everything and everybody's accountable. It's a different world. Yep. How have you managed that? Because everybody that works for Coop, at least all the senior people, at some point have worked for a writer, right?
0: Yeah, I think the, the one thing I I can tell you though things don't work the same as in a large corporation than a startup. But what I can tell you is what I see, there's some things that aren't negotiable, even in the startup world, right? Number one is, you know, the integrity and trust that we have as coop. We have to be held to the same standard as riders. So from a customer standpoint, and our financial reporting and the way that we do things, we have to hold those standards the rider would want us to hold them. That's non-negotiable. Other than that, it's pretty much hands-off and we can make decisions very quickly in Coop that probably wouldn't fly inside the building. It just gives you a little more runway with the product. When you're looking at what decision am I going to make with our team, hiring someone or taking someone out of the product, as a startup you can move a lot faster on that. And really, you have to make really fast people decisions because you don't have the time to have someone that's on the team that's not performing because it costs you an entire market. So you, when you only have one person in a market, If that person's not effective, they got to go. So in a traditional big company, those processes take a long time. In a startup, you tend to move a little faster on those types of decisions, which is important. And then when it comes to looking at bringing on resources to help you in certain areas in the business, you're able to move faster on resources that you bring in. I think those are the three kind of guiding principles that we've always gone to. Is our reporting as good as what Ryder is traditionally? No, we have a lot of work to do. But we're getting there, and we've always made sure that we've stayed front and center with our executive team on where Roman and I think things are going well and where they're going poorly in the business. Because we don't ever wanna get surprised by anyone that they either didn't know or we didn't articulate what was going on in the business because they are investing a lot in us. And it's a high commitment on behalf of Ryder To trust us to do
1: this. I think part of that shift that's difficult for folks sometimes is that sort of extreme level of accountability that comes when you move into the startup world. That there is no possibility of shifting responsibility to other people, even frankly, to outside vendors. It's you, like you are the last source of truth. In corporate world, like corporations are built with all kinds of layers of people Mm -hmm. that are or are not necessary, (laughs) who, who at some point have to spend some kind of effort justifying how the whole process works. And that just, all that needs to disappear if you're running a startup.
0: Yeah, it does. Yeah. Roman Roman still has to buy the toilet paper and put the toilet paper in the bathroom at the coop office. So he's got everything from the beginning all the way to the top. So we're believe me, we're still we were still scrubbing the floors of the office and trying to buy desks and assemble them until two o'clock in the morning for new reps that were coming in. So none of that goes away just because you're you work for Ryder but you're in a separate building. That's right. all the same stuff that, that you're doing like any other startup.
1: Talk to me about your relationships with vendors, because you worked with some of the people that you worked with at Ryder in working on coop is, was that a different relationship? in the context of Coop at all?
0: Yeah, I think so. No, I, I think that, yeah, there are different relationships. We push them in different ways. We, we certainly push them harder. I, I think than what we did, what they were traditionally used to. We have a very tight timeline on things that we're trying to deliver in our product and we push them extremely hard to meet or exceed the commitments. And then we change course a lot on reprioritizing. So they have to be very nimble working with us and other partners with us. We, we don't have some of the same problem that other startups with. Like what, when we're negotiating with insurance companies on coverage for our policy, they know that we're a part part of a fortune five. So we get a little bit of a break when it comes to what's your financial strength and what are you going to put up for cash? And we don't trust that your revenue projections are right. So when Roman and I give a projection on demand or revenue, we're going to hit that. We're not going to miss that number. When we're talking to investors or we're talking to VCs or PEs, or we're talking to bankers and we're walking them through what this product looks like, the numbers that you're seeing, From us in our five year projections, are what is going to happen. There's no pie in the sky presentation that just says you go off to the moon. I don't need to do that. Whatever I show to people, my executive team is going to expect me to hit that. There's a little bit more of that you see when you're trying to start up a company inside a Fortune 5.
1: I assume another advantage you would have is that as a startup who wants to know what's going on in an industry and wants to know what's going on with other similar kinds of companies and startups, and you probably have a level of access because you can throw around the rider name right? Yeah. that most people don't like if you want to go talk to uber you go talk to uber or if you if you want to go talk to a startup on the west coast that's doing asset sharing in a different category yeah. you just go meet with them because you have that name behind you
0: early stage we wanted to develop a relationship with the guys at, at toro because they're in the asset sharing business on the automobile side we called and said we'd love to come out and make a visit and sit down with you
1: and you both had the money it, to go do that and the leverage to get in with them because yeah, for them, who knows how, what this relationship could lead to.
0: Yeah. And we've made some, we've made some great standing relationships with, with Uber and Convoy and Power Loop, And you know, these are companies that have raised hundreds of millions of dollars over the last year that are either using Coop as their platform now, or a portion of their volume is coming through our platform. But they all started with early phone calls of, Hey, we're figuring this thing out. We think we got something that is going to make sense. What do you think? I'll show you Ours, you show me yours meetings that we have, which lead into a lot of other business opportunities for both companies. We're not myopic on it's only Coop. We have other interests to help Ryder with whether it's leasing more vehicles or bringing on other solutions or partnering with other companies that are going to benefit Ryder and Coop. So we're not just concerned about ourselves singularly. So when we have these meetings, we're we're thinking about all of our products that the company offers. But we're leading with Coop because that's the platform that we're in charge of and we want to see successful and everything. But we, I need the whole company to be successful too. So
1: what happens on the day that Coop costs Rider business? Like the first time there's a quarter that Coop is the cause.
0: Yeah. I don't know. We we haven't, <laughs> hopefully one day it gets big enough for that that to happen. <laughs> on a uh, eight and a half billion or whatever we're going to do this year, <laughs> we're probably a ways from that happening. Robert, our CEO has mentioned on a couple of earnings calls, the, the Coop product and, and some of our other startups that we have. I think what it shows is that we're developing that muscle in the company. And though it's not significant from an earnings standpoint for Rider yet, and we don't even disclose what the significance of it is, it does show that we are starting to develop that muscle of creating segments within our company that are going to be bigger than what our current offering is. That's really the important part of this, is to develop that muscle. And I can tell you, our management team hopes that this is successful because they'd love to be able to show that we can do this and many more after that and be able to continue to transform.
1: been the hardest thing for you personally. And, and does it affect at all how you approach or talk to other startups now when you're out of plug play when you maybe have a little bit of a different perspective.
0: Yeah, I think I can give, I think I can give better feedback now on when they're pitching to us, are they pitching for the sake of pitching are they pitching because they know that there's some type of match with Ryder. I can sit there all day in an office and have the train of startups come in and I'm like, this has nothing to do with us. There's nothing that this company does that is has any value to us. So I, I think it's giving feedback to the startups. I told one of them a couple of months ago we did them online. I said, listen, your time is no less valuable than mine. It's as valuable as my time is. So you take in an hour to pitch me, but that costs you someone else that you probably had a better match with. And if you just did a little bit of homework first, you probably would have gone on to another company that you would have spent that hour with. Because there's only so many hours you can pitch. There's only so many times you can do it. And you can only keep track of so many. So spend your time where you think that you have a match for that company, where you add value for their customers or for their infrastructure or for something that they're gonna to have to address in the future. Just don't pitch for the sake of pitching. No one needs the practice.
1: Do so you want to talk at all about Atlanta, about the landscape here?
0: Atlanta's a top two market in the US. MSA for transportation, probably next to LA or the DFW marketplace. Atlanta is just massive. From a regulatory standpoint, from a friction standpoint, insurance, and from an MSA size, it was the perfect market to test this platform. And frankly, this is one of our biggest markets for Ryder in the U.S. as far as number of shops and number of clients that we have and different services we offer. This is a great market down here. This has been one of our favorite markets to be in, frankly, because of the diversity of the business that is in kind of the metroplex here. Everything from down south in Savannah to the port business to when you get into the middle of Georgia, Macon, and Georgia, and you're into textiles and manufacturing and more long-term transportation. And then when you get into the city and you're in food and beverage or you're in events up until COVID, you have a good diverse mix of customers in the in the Atlanta marketplace, which really makes it easy to have the conversation around monetizing vehicles and access to equipment and all those conversations go really well.
1: A lot of people that listen to this want to get into venture capital or somewhere in the industry. If if I wanted to be a VC, do you think a role like yours would scratch that itch?
0: Yeah, I think, yeah, definitely would. Yeah, I think definitely. I think if anything, it teaches you some of the fundamental things you're going to need if you're ever going to get into get to venture capital. Half the success of venture capital is picking what one out of seven is really the number you're trying to get to. Most of the, the guys and the girls that are successful in VC right now, they all were in one startup at some point that either burned to the ground, but they had a great experience or they were wildly successful that allowed them to springboard into VC. We met with a ton of VC players and all of them have very interesting stories with very diverse backgrounds. But you look at the number of VCs that spun out of Uber and a lot of those guys and girls who came from the transportation industry. So when we're having conversations with them, they understand the business. As a VC, you also need to pick what segment do you want to be in? It's not everything. There are VCs that specialize in in mobility and transportation. There's VCs that specialize in nothing but fintech. There's VCs that focus on nothing but social awareness. It's very hard to find one that's good at everything. So when you start looking at logos on their website and trying to understand where they're placing their bets, give you a little bit of a sign of, are you a fit or not with that group?
1: All right. So some Somebody's in their car on their way home from their executive MBA class. They have an idea in their head that they think would be a a great startup, but they work at a big, giant company. What kind of advice do you give to somebody like that? Is the only option to go quit and start your startup? How would you advise that person think through that moment?
0: No, absolutely. If you have a product that you think adds value to the company that you work for, and it's got a way to generate revenue for the company and open up a segment, then you need to put the effort in and on your own time, put the effort in on nights and weekends and Get this thing put together and put together what your slides look like on an MVP and what your business case looks like and ask. Ask for the money. There's no what are they gonna say? I need 300,000 to do this, and this is the value it's gonna create, and this is the test I'm gonna prove and this is the outcome. What are they gonna say? Yes or no? That this isn't that no one's gonna get fired because you, you had a great thought for a company on how they're gonna accelerate their business. And again, I know big companies get a bad rap for startups, but there are there are some big companies that have had some wildly successful startups, and they all came from some someone in the organization, it, would, it didn't come from a consulting firm like McKenzie that told the company what they should do. No, they're great. And I'm sure they add a ton of value on all kinds of creative things for the company. The, the workers that are employed there are the most cases, the ones bring some of these concepts for it. No, I, I think if it's something that has nothing to do with your company, you think it's going to be wildly successful and that's what wags your tail, go do it, but do it on nights and weekends while you're still working your full-time job. And then do an MVP, launch something on your own small, test it out in your market. Place see what the frictions are. Don't take out hundreds of thousands of dollars of loans. There's other ways to do this besides that way of I'm gonna either burn or I'm gonna be wildly (laughs) successful. That's a horrible approach to doing that. When I ran the rental organization for almost 20 years, I had 700 employees. The best suggestions for products I got all came from the people that were working the front line, and that's who I asked for advice on. What are you seeing? And what do you think we should do in the company? And where are we behind on technology? And what are some of the things? I was very open. With our staff on giving me critical feedback in our business and where we're missing the boat, and I think that carried on to later in my career. I don't have a problem walking forward and asking for money in our company because I'm either I'm going to get told yes or no, and it's not going to break my feelings either way. <laughs> And if I believe strongly enough in it, I'm probably going to ask again and again, but I'm going to have to improve my position every time I go and ask. And
1: I've had friends who worked at very large companies, pitch something that was directly in line with what they did. And the response was, no, we're absolutely not going to do that. But if you want to go do it, we'll be your first customer.
0: Sure. Great. Then you just got, you just validated your platform. That's a win. That's a complete win.
1: And if you don't do that, why leave and take that risk without at least having that
0: conversation? Right. Right. They're not going to steal your idea and go do it on their own. you <laughs> the company. I think there's a ton of opportunity out there for everyone. I've seen over the years, a lot of development and investment that's going on in the marketplace. And the, the whole COVID situation really has not had much of an interruption on innovation in startups. And I think that the time has never been better right now than to bring something forward to your company, to talk about a product that you think is profitable and has growth in it, and then to start to address a customer base. I, there's never a bad time to do this.